0: Step into the extraordinary with Auditory Anthology, a podcast series where science fiction short stories come alive. Narrated by me, your voice of weird darkness, and curated by Keith Conrad, each episode is a journey into imagination. Explore cosmic wonders and futuristic tales, and dive into a universe of stories where the impossible is possible auditory anthology available at AuditoryAnthology.com and on apple spotify or your podcast player of choice stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only parental discretion is strongly advised the door and could see that he had completely black eyes. I closed the door and the knocking started again. I went to my room. As soon as I entered my room, the knocking sound stopped abruptly. I closed my door and climbed into my bed when I heard a hard knock on my bedroom door. At the same time, there was a loud thud on my window. This thud made the glass shake and rattle. I thought the window was going to break. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, crime, conspiracy mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you're new here, welcome to the show. And if you're listening on the radio or on a streaming station, be sure to subscribe to the podcast too. I upload episodes seven days a week. And if you're already a member of Our Weirdo Family, please take a moment and invite a friend, family member, or co-worker to listen in. Recommending Weird Darkness to others helps make it possible for me to keep doing the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com, where you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and more, along with the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group. Coming up in this episode, it's a special Dark episode of Weird Darkness, where I reach back into the archives and bring out some dark and strange stories you might not have heard yet, as they are from several years ago. Now, bolt your doors. Lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into this Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness. I lived with my paternal grandparents most of my childhood. When I was about five years old, My grandparents sold their large Victorian-style house to move us all into my great-grandmother's tiny shack of a home. My great-grandmother was in poor health and had Alzheimer's. My Nana, Pop, Uncle Bertie, and I all pitched in to help care for Grandma Grace. About a year later, Grandma Grace passed away in her sleep in her bedroom. I remember how strange it was that morning when I woke up and looked in her room and she was still asleep. She was usually awake before I was. It was our morning routine that I would wake up and go into her room and sit in the chair beside her bed and visit with her while she and I waited for my Nana and Uncle Benny to prepare our breakfast. The morning was the best time of day for her because she was clear-headed and more herself. She knew who I was and we had very pleasant chats. I looked forward to our talks in the morning, because by the afternoon she was calling me one of my cousin's names and was very hateful to me. But that morning she wasn't awake. Once the ambulance arrived and took her away, I realized what was going on. I knew she had died. Shortly after her death, we repainted her room and my uncle settled into it. I myself could have never stayed in a room where someone died but I guess he found it to be better for him than sharing a room with my grandpa. When I was eight or so, my Nana woke me up so I could get washed up and ready to start my day. Usually, while I was washing up, she or my uncle would press my clothes and prepare my breakfast so that I could eat and then get dressed directly after. I was in the bathroom washing my face and neck when I heard someone run by the door and push it open. It wasn't just a slight push that barely opened the door, it was a forceful push and the door swung open scaring the hell out of me. After the shock of what had just happened, I poked my head out of the door and looked to my left and then to my right and saw no one. I stepped out of the bathroom and peered into my uncle's room only to find it empty. His room was directly across from the bathroom. Furious, I marched out of the bathroom and into the den I found my Nana and Uncle Benny sitting and drinking coffee. Angrily, I said, Uncle Benny, why did you do that? You scared me to death. He looked puzzled. What are you talking about, baby? He asked. You pushed the door open on me while I was washing up, I huffed. At that point, my Nana had heard enough and quickly let me know that my uncle had been sitting in the den with her the whole time and had not left. Well then, Pop did it, I accused. "'Young lady, Pop went to the store to get milk for your breakfast,' she informed me. I thought for a second. There was no way I was ever going to imply that my Nana did it. She was a big old South black woman and didn't have time or patience for nonsense. Once I gave it more thought, my uncle wore a brace on his leg and walked with a limp and painfully slowly, I might add, so there was no way he could have ran that fast by the door." And, just like Nana said, Pop returned home with a gallon of milk and a lottery scratch-off ten or so minutes later. I began to question my sanity and if what I thought had happened really happened. I know it happened, it is still fresh in my mind to this day, 20 years later, and none of the details have ever changed. I thought it could have been a gust of wind. But from where? There wasn't an outside door anywhere near the bathroom, and all the windows had plastic covering over them. I was puzzled by this for a long time, until other strange things started to happen. I got a computer one year for Christmas, and we put it in my uncle's room on his dresser. The dresser was on the same wall as the door, and the computer sat right next to the door. The bedroom was so small I could sit on the edge of the bed to play the computer, I was facing the door so no one could come in or walk past without me knowing. Suddenly the air in the room would change. The only way I can explain it is if you're in a room and your back is facing the door and someone walks in. Your back is to them and you can't see them and you didn't hear them enter the room but you can feel the difference in the air from them being in it. That is how it would feel. I would feel someone sitting on the bed next to me but of course no one was there. It was startling at first, and then it hit me. It's Grandma Grace. I soon realized that it was probably her who pushed open the door, letting me know she was there. I got used to the feeling of her being around, and when I would feel her enter the room or sit down beside me, I would greet her and talk to her, and it felt just like it did when we would sit and chat in the mornings. My mother, grandmother, and little brother had come to visit me in Paris. It was one of those hit-and-run weekenders when they arrived late one Saturday morning and left early on Sunday afternoon. There was no time for them to come out to the village where I lived and worked, a short train journey outside Paris, so we celebrated my 21st birthday in Montmartre. It was a tearful leave-taking. It had been wonderful to see my family for the first time in a year, my mother and I had always been very close, so close, in fact, that more often than not our letters would cross in the post, answering questions we had not yet received. I went to bed that night, missing her horribly, and cried myself to sleep. Around two in the morning, I heard my mother calling my name Susie. I sat up, wide awake. Susie. No one else ever called me that and her voice is one I could not fail to recognize. There was an urgency in her tone. There was no one there. I was still in the village on the edge of Paris, and my mother would be in Bologna ready to board the ferry. Blaming the emotions of the day, I called myself an imaginative fool. Even so, I got up and checked, so clear was the voice, and I heard it again. Susie, standing wide awake and shivering on the stairs. I could not shake the sense of unease. My employers were concerned, and after several days of watching me fret, told me to phone England. Dad, is everything all right? Uh, you'd better speak to your mother. I waited, worrying until I heard my mother's voice. Susie. She sounded odd. The tone was the same as always, but the voice sounded slurred and unfamiliar. Slowly, she told me what had happened. The coach had arrived at Bologna. She'd been feeling unwell for a little while, but put it down to missing me and the fatigue of the journey. As soon as the ferry had left the port, she collapsed. They told her later that she had suffered a stroke. She knew little of what was going on around her, but remembered calling my name. She said she dreamed that she was lost and was trying to reach me and knew that if she could find me, she would be safe. My mother described the dream in detail, and it was without any doubt the route I had taken from the train to my home, a route I walked every day, but which she had never seen. She described the big house behind its screen of trees, the tiny lizards that skittered away with every footfall as you walked the path along the edge of the forest, even the wildflowers and wild strawberries down to the very last detail. I still have the diaries of that time, but I do not need them in order to remember. I did not see my mother's living ghost, but I heard her voice calling when she was unconscious from halfway across France." I've been wanting to share this story with your site for a few weeks. A few weeks ago, I was walking down my street to get my car out of the garage. I was walking along and noticed a homeless man sitting on a bench-like thing outside the garage. I would never seen him before and he wasn't a regular on that block. There are a few homeless people in my area so he was very noticeable. As I passed, he looked up at me and caught my eyes please spare some change. Anything you can spare will help me. I was thinking about offering him some change, but then realized that all I had was some change buried in my handbag somewhere. I kept walking, pretending not to hear the man. I felt a pang of remorse as I passed him, but continued. He continued to beg, and then as I sauntered away from him, he said, please spare some change. Please, Michaela. I turned around, as most people would, hearing their name called, and I was met with this homeless man's strange, sinister stare. I was shocked that the man knew my name, being that I was not wearing anything that would identify me, and I had never met him before. There was no logical explanation for him knowing that. When I looked back at him, his eyes were black, bottomless, and almost hypnotic. There was absolutely no white in his eyes. His stare was truly frightening. It was evil. He was powerful and I felt as though I had hands running up and down my back. I truly felt that this was not a person. It was a creature and it knew everything about me. It continued to stare at me and he stopped begging as other people passed by as I started walking, looking at him out of the corner of my eye. I was so unbelievably frightened and speechless. I have no idea what it was or who it was and why it called my name. I've never seen that man again on the street, and I don't ever want to. There's more of this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness still to come. Hey, weirdos! Right now, through July 25th, Everything in the Weird Darkness store is up to 35% off. That means $13 t-shirts, $20 phone cases, $30 hoodies, and way more. And as always, 100% of the profits I receive are donated to organizations that help those who suffer from depression. If you don't like what you see in the Weird Darkness store page, you can use the search function and find what you do want. There are hundreds of thousands of designs to choose from. Save a little dough by grabbing your merchandise before the July 25th deadline. Make your way to the store at WeirdDarkness.com and save a bundle now through July 25, 2021. Every month, one email newsletter subscriber is chosen at random to win a Weird Darkness prize pack. You could be my next winner. Sign up for the newsletter for free at WeirdDarkness.com. I usually go to sleep late at night, spending time reading books, watching TV, or listening to music. A few nights ago, after listening to music for a long time, I became sleepy and removed my headphones. I clearly remember checking the time, and it was around 3 a.m. I was simply lying down, trying to sleep, and that's when I heard a sound. Concentrating further, I could understand that it was a knocking sound probably from a little child. As gentle as it was, it seemed to reverberate through the house as though it were coming through a giant speaker. I immediately checked the other rooms in our house and my family were sound asleep. I also checked the neighborhood for lights but I couldn't find any. I was really confused and went to the dining room from where the sound was the loudest. I started to notice that it was coming from outside. I went to the door, and I could see the shape of a small child standing outside on our porch. I felt sick. I opened the door and a small child stood there. I turned on the porch lights and I could see that he was dressed in black. I asked him what he wanted and he just stared at me. He had completely black eyes. I closed the door and the knocking started again. I became really confused this time and went to my room. As soon as I entered my room, the knocking sound stopped abruptly. I decided to let it go and get some sleep. I closed my door and climbed into my bed when I heard a hard knock on my bedroom door. At the same time, there was a loud thud on my window. This thud made the glass rattle and shake. I thought the window was going to break. Somehow, and I don't know how, I fell asleep. I have no idea how that happened. I just remember the window shaking and then waking up the following morning. When I woke up in the morning, I tried to dismiss the experience as my imagination. When I told my dad about this, he asked me to lock my door at night and to get to sleep early. I thought it was all over, but from that day I feel a presence with me in my room every night. It never tried to communicate with me or scare me, but I could always feel it with me at night when I'm alone in my room. Has anyone else ever encountered anything like this? I've heard a lot of your stories about black-eyed people and would like to share an experience my brother had some years ago in Nashville. This is a true story he related to me one night over a beer. My brother is an extremely serious man and I wouldn't bet against his word. The story my brother shared with me was about an extremely strange, evil and clairvoyant black-eyed man that he and his friends encountered a few years back in Nashville, Tennessee. My brother and his buddies were having dinner at a restaurant when a strange man walked into the restaurant and made for their table. At first, my brother just thought he was a friendly drunk. He kept his head down, walked erratically, and seemed to have no concept of there being other people in the restaurant. This man sat down at their table and tried to make as though he knew what they were talking about. But it was strange he laughed at all the wrong things and talked over other people. He seemed to have no concept at all about people. His appearance was more of a nuisance than anything else at this point, and none of the guys seemed interested in talking to this stranger. But he managed to make his way into their circle. The man seemed to want to just melt into the group. He kept looking towards the door as though he expected someone to come in after him. My brother said that out of nowhere the mood of this stranger changed completely and so did the subject matter as he asked my brother's friend, if I could give you anything, what would it be? At first the friend laughed it off, but the stranger let it be known by his tone that he was completely serious and he asked him again, if I could give you anything. The friend replied something like, I don't know, man. money and Lindsay Lohan as my girlfriend. Things got weird when the stranger admitted how he could do these things for him in exchange for his soul. He then started openly sharing the details of his possession Mm -hmm. and how it was his duty to find a human willing to sacrifice his soul, one person every year or something like that. My brother noticed his eyes became blackened at some point And the most indescribable evil aura was around him. The guys were all getting freaked out, yet still thought this guy was probably full of it. The stranger wanted to prove his ability, so he asked the guy to ask him any question about himself and he could answer it. So my brother's friend asked, okay, what's my grandma's name? The demon man answered, Megan Jane Hofstetter. Which was, to their amazement, correct. At this point, things were getting strange and it was getting very late. My brother and his friends decided to get the hell out of there. The man didn't follow them, but they couldn't get him out of their heads that night. All of them dreamed about that man. The next day, they decided to head home and cut their journey short. What stands out most to my brother is the incredibly evil, creepy, strange feeling that he and his friends all witnessed and felt firsthand. I wanted to share this story as it fascinated me for years. The problem is it is very creepy to talk about, but I have this urge I can't explain to talk about it. telephones are not the same anymore. No longer do we get crossed lines, mysteriously strange noises, or have to ask an operator to be connected to our number of choice. Indeed, we mostly carry our telephones with us, easily available for instant use in a pocket and usable in many different ways. Overhead telephone lines are also fast disappearing as the conversion to underground cables and fiber optic connections continues at a frantic pace. These ugly telegraph poles will not be missed, though, as they stride across the landscape and especially the one near the medieval village of Leenham that is locally known as the Killing Pole. The story first appeared in the 1930s when the new main road from London to Dover was put through Kent, UK. The Lenham section snakes from Maidstone to Ashford, and with a line of new pipe telegraph poles marking the route and taking fast telephone communications to villages along the way for the first time. The skilled and tough linesmen who made the connections to individual farms and houses often worked alone, mostly traveling the route on a motorcycle with a sidecar To hold their ladders and tools. One such engineer was dispatched late on a winter's afternoon to attend to a badly loose connection close to the Lenham Junction. It was both cold and windy, with the ever-present threat of snow in the air. After parking his motorcycle safely off of A-20 Road behind a gap in the hedge, he set up his ladder, put his tool satchel on his shoulder and climbed the ladder to its full height. Using the fixed steps screwed onto the pole itself, he left the ladder and continued on to the top of the pole, arriving at the crossbars carrying the heavy cables. It's not known exactly what happened next, but it is surmised that the ladder was suddenly blown away from the pole and toppled over the hedge into the field. The worker was marooned at the top of the pole continuing to work on fixing the fault, he connected his test receiver to the line and tried to call the Maidstone depot for help. The call was received at Maidstone and logged, but it was impossible for the depot foreman to hear the message due to the poor quality of the line above the howling wind. It seems that the engineer may have tried to hail a passing vehicle to alert the driver to his situation. And in doing so slipped or was blown from the icy steps and in falling became caught up in the electric cables by the strap of his canvas satchel, which squeezed tighter and tighter around his neck. He was unable to help himself and lapsed into unconsciousness. That night the snow fell hard and deep, as it often does in rural Kent, the road soon becoming impassable to cars and buses and the hanging linesman slowly froze to death. Icicles formed on his warm body, and he was slowly overcome by the freezing cold weather until his snow-shrouded body resembled a large and icy sack hanging from the post, turning grotesquely and slowly in the breeze as it froze stiff. At around 10 a.m. the next morning, the body was reported to Leenham Post Office by a man who said he had passed the night at the same spot after being caught in the snow and feeling too cold to carry on with his job, spent the night hanging around at the telegraph pole. At first light, he had seen the body above and had trudged his way through the deep snow to get help. Seeing the signpost on the junction which pointed to Lenham, he had set out immediately, he said, Although cold and now soaking wet from the melting snow on his clothes, he did not stay to accompany anyone back to the scene of the tragedy, disappearing as the postmaster turned to the phone to call the constable for help. He was never seen again, after apparently fading into the misty snowscape on his way back to the pole. As soon as was possible, the local police constable, accompanied by several members of the village fire brigade, made their way to the new road and cut the gruesome body down from the ice-covered cables. The frozen and dead man was taken to and kept a day or two in the small old Lena mortuary and, as soon as was possible as the snow started to melt away, was transported by horse cart to Maidstone for identification. The pole stood alone, the only object that knew the true fate of the engineer on that terrible night. It is said that even today, on dark, freezing, snowy evenings, a faint glow can be seen slowly climbing the post, where it stops for a while at the top until suddenly plunging downward to a sharp, bouncing stop and then wavering and turning slowly with the wind. Weird noises can also be heard from the wires above one's head as they seemingly whisper the words, I am dying, help me, dying, dying, in a wavering high tremolo as the wind whistles through the wires. This is certainly not a place to stop or to break down when passing over the road. A traveler in the 1960s had his car suddenly stall and the engine stop at the very spot as he passed the pole, and he could not get it restarted whatever he did. It was snowing at the time, and his only recourse was to stay inside and sleep in the car. He did not record in detail what he experienced that night, but the effect on him was so severe that he vowed never to drive the road again, either at night or in the daylight. He would never reveal the true horror of what he saw at that place. Almost freezing to death himself that night, he was found in a demented state by an AA patrolman the next morning, who warmed him up in the AA van before driving him into Lenham for a hot drink, food, and warm clothes as fast as he could. As he had found no fault that could be traced as being mechanical, the car was assumed to have suffered a sudden complete electrical failure of some kind. But which was completely untraceable by the skilled AA patrolman. Many times since those days, others have had similar breakdowns at the very same spot. And, even more frighteningly, several serious accidents have actually taken place there. And over the many years that have passed, many people have reported a misty figure standing by the road in foggy winter conditions who seems to wish to direct them off the road towards the pole, as though evilly willing them to crash at that spot. It is now surmised locally that the man who reported to the post office was actually the ghostly shade of the dead man's spirit, eager to get help to cut himself down and alert his family to his death. The biting question local people still ask is, does the unresting energy surrounding this tragic night still linger within the whistling wires, eagerly trying to bring more unhappiness to this evil spot in order to serve its lust for death. And more to the point, who will be its next victim? my grandfather grew up on a chicken farm outside of Krakow, Poland. He passed away a few years ago at the age of 82. A few days before his passing on, due to an aggressive form of stomach cancer, he sat me down next to him in his old rocking chair and said in his familiar Polish accent, after I took the boat to New York, I promised to leave this story behind. He didn't look up as he spoke to me simply staring into his cup of black coffee. been seventy years and I must tell someone before I meet God. This is what he told me. I was born in a small, quaint, empty town which, despite the Nazi occupation, still functioned. We lived in this two-bedroom farmhouse, my father, mother, and my brothers, Michael and Igor. I'm sorry you never got to meet any of them. Anyway, Michael and Igor were twins, identical twins, actually, and we had heard rumors of the Nazi fascination with identical twins. This forced us, and we already lived in a secluded part of the countryside in the last occupied house in the town, to be even more reserved. In order to not go into the occupied towns, we basically ate only chicken and eggs for every meal and whatever Mama could gather from the garden. It was lonely, but we survived. The only two things which were really hard on me were the fact I had to sleep in the basement due to Michael and Igor being toddlers. They required my father and mother's attention. The basement was cold, with only a small window and moonlight was the only light I got. Because of this, I always delayed going down there until I was absolutely exhausted so I wouldn't have to lie there awake. On the nights that I couldn't manage to sleep, I would look out the window, which gave me a small view of the garden and the large abandoned water well. This was my daily activity through those lonely war-torn nights. In general, it was boring and uneventful, but occasionally I could catch a glimpse of a family or even just a man or two lovers sneaking their way through our garden up to our front door. They always looked rushed and frightened and sometimes wore tattered uniforms. What would follow were horrible sounds of banging and pleadings for whoever lived here to open up, followed by an argument between my father and mother over whether we should let them in he moved in the chair to adjust himself. You see, son, we didn't know it, well, I at least didn't, that we lived fairly close to the Auschwitz concentration camp and those people were escapees. Well, did your father let him in? I asked impatiently. No, he said, it would have been a death sentence for them as well as for us. The Nazis didn't like Poles, but they tolerated us and it was easier to hide Michael or Igor than an entire family. My father did what he had to do in order to keep his family alive. As the war went on, less and less people began showing up in the middle of the night. Only our chicken and vegetables began to disappear. Losing our only supply of food would not have been possible, and at this point my father knew it was probably the escapees, so he built a fence around our property. Despite this, the chickens continued to disappear. They weren't killed, they were simply gone, just vanished from their cages and pens. One night, I decided to stay up myself in order to see if I could find out the answer. I battled my tiredness until the wee hours of the morning, and despite the poor lighting and rain, I caught a glimpse of what seemed to be a human figure run across the garden. I rushed upstairs to tell my father, and he ran outside with a knife, the best home defense weapon we could afford, but we found nothing. No one. The next day we did find something, though. Footprints, leading from the chicken cages to the water well. They were made in the wet mud from the rain, and they were of bare feet. No shoes, no socks, just feet. My father had mercy on the man who was trying to find refuge and left him a note indicating that he had two days to leave and then he would begin to seal the well. I waited impatiently for my grandfather to tell me the fate of the man. The following night, I conjured up the idea to take a blanket down the well to the man since winter was creeping in. I waited until my parents were asleep and I snuck outside. I shouted down the well something friendly, indicating to the poor man my intentions were benign, and I began my descent, hands and feet clinging to the pegs which were attached to stones. As I approached the bottom, I smelled something absolutely horrific. I pulled my father's flashlight from my pocket and tried to shine it on the man, coming to the realization of just how large this well was since it used to supply water for the entire town and its families, families which no longer remained. But I found no man, only a hole. A hole in the stone where the wall of the well had collapsed, opening up to some type of crevice, only two meters wide and three meters deep and tall. Inside sat not a man. Inside was a family, with only a skeleton-like creature as the only survivor. The light reflected off of his sunken eyes and grayish skin, face covered in blood, with chicken carcasses scattered around, a pile of decomposing chickens next to a woman, a son, and a daughter, the children who must have been barely five years old, and they seemed to have been dead for weeks. The man, if he could even be called that, just stared at the light, and I stared back, incapable of breaking his stare. I did not feel threatened by him, for he lacked any sense of aggression. He simply sat there, crouched over without a sound, next to the putrefying bodies of his loved ones and chickens he could have only been using as his source of water as their meat was not eaten. He was empty, devoid of whatever in us makes us human. He should have realized his family was dead long ago, but he was still bringing food for their corpses. He couldn't accept it. He did finally turn his head, though, when I shined the light back onto the corpse of his daughter. He stared at her and sat down closer to her and continued to stare. You can leave now. I'll open the gate so you can escape. My father will seal the well in the morning," I said to him. Please leave now. My young voice and advice didn't seem to have any effect on him. At this moment, I decided it would be better for me to just climb back up the well and leave. Hopefully, the man would follow and escape. As I began my climb, I shined the light on him one final time. What did you see, Grandpa? I shuddered. A tear fall from his eye. He had become a man once again. He broke free from the delusion only when he saw the body of his dead daughter, which had been hidden by the darkness. He realized he had been bringing food not to his family, but to corpses. That night, it rained again, but I found no footprints leaving the well in the morning, when my father sealed it. Keep listening – there's more of this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness on the way! Hey Weirdos! Weird Darkness has been nominated for a Podcast Award in four categories this year – Storyteller Drama, Society and Culture, True Crime, and the Coveted People's Choice category. You can vote for Weird Darkness in all four categories at the same time by visiting PodcastAwards.com. Once you sign up to vote, you'll find all four categories in the left-hand column – People's Choice at the very top, and then bottom left-hand column for the remaining three when you scroll down. While it's still on your mind right now, please, go vote! Only you, my Weirdo family, can help Weird Darkness become an award-winning podcast this year. Go to PodcastAwards.com and vote for Weird Darkness in the Storyteller Drama category, the Society and Culture category, the True Crime category, and the People's Choice category. And thank you, Weirdo family, for nominating and voting for Weird Darkness. If you like Weird Darkness, you'll want to also listen to some of the free audiobooks I've narrated, with titles by Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Charles Dickens, and more. Check out all the audiobooks I've narrated on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. The account of the Bell Witch of Tennessee is, without a doubt, America's greatest ghost story. It contains all of the elements of great history with real-life characters, eyewitness accounts, affidavits as to the validity of the events and bizarre elements of the fantastic. It is also one of the rare cases in history where a ghost not only injured the occupants of the house it haunted, it was actually responsible for the death of one of them. The events in the case took place in the early 1800s, But they have never been forgotten. Likely because of the lingering haunting that is still connected to the case today. I first became interested in the story of the Bell Witch when I was still in junior high school. A few years later, I talked my parents into visiting the infamous cave that was located on the former Bell property during a family vacation. I remain fascinated with the story to this day, have written a full-length book on the subject, Season of the Witch, and I make annual trips to the site with attendees on the American Hauntings tours. It's a strange story, and one that I truly believe in. I can't tell you that every ghost story you will read in the book is true, but each of them is real. In other words, they were real events that witnesses claim actually happened to them, there are some places, however, that I can personally vouch for. The Bell Witch Cave, which is forever linked to the Bell Witch Haunting, is such a place. When John Bell and his family came to Tennessee in the early years of the 19th century, there was no town of Adams. It was merely a settlement of houses, farms, and cabins, loosely knitted together as a community. The family had no idea of the horror that awaited them. John Bell was born in Halifax County, North Carolina in 1750. He was the son of a Scottish farmer and was considered by most to be a hard-working young man. He was apprenticed in the cooper barrel-making business as a boy, but chose to become a farmer instead. In 1782, Bell married Lucy Williams. daughter of a prosperous businessman. Shortly after the wedding, using money he had saved, Bell purchased a small farm and he and his wife settled down to raise a family. Here, the Bell family lived for the next 22 years, and Lucy Bell bore her husband six children. In 1804, Bell decided to move west to the Tennessee frontier he was 54 when the family arrived in Robertson County. He purchased about 1,000 acres of land along the Red River, 36 miles northwest of Nashville, and built a comfortable home on the property. The family settled quickly into the community. By 1817, John and Lucy had nine children, seven sons and two daughters, Jesse, John Jr., Drew, Benjamin, Esther, Zadok, Elizabeth, Richard Williams, and Joel Egbert. Sadly, Benjamin died very young, and while Zaddock lived long enough to become a brilliant lawyer in Alabama, he also passed away at an early age. As the years passed, John Bell became a well-liked and much-respected man of the community. His neighbors and friends admired him, and the men of the area often sought out his opinions, in addition nothing but kind words were expressed about lucy bell who was loved by everyone the bell home was always open to travelers and the house was a frequent location for social gatherings one of those who attended nearly every event at the bell home was richard powell a handsome school who was popular in the community he was the master of the local school and had tutored several of the bell children including Elizabeth, who was usually known as Betsy. She was now starting to grow into womanhood, and it was no secret that Powell was enamored of the girl. However, as she was still too young for courtship, Powell would often invent excuses to visit the Bell Farm in order to see her. Powell was not alone in his admiration for Betsy. A local young man named Joshua Gardner, who was much closer to Betsy's age, was also in love with her it was known that Betsy returned his affections, although it was an affair that would end tragically in the years to come. The strange events in the Bell House began in late 1817 with a series of knockings that began to sound on the front door of the house. When a family member would go to let the caller in, no one would be there. The knockings and rappings were soon followed by hideous scratching sounds, It sounded as though the wood was being peeled from the outside walls, although no cause could be discovered for the noises. Before long, the eerie sounds moved inside. They began as gnawing, scratching, and scraping noises that seemed to emanate from the bedroom belonging to the Bell Sons. They would jump out of bed and light a candle, trying to find the source of the noise. It would then stop only to start again as soon as the candle was put out. Soon the sound of the rat-like scratching was joined by what sounded like a large dog pawing at the wooden floor. Other noises were described as sounding like two large animals dragging chains through the house. The crashing and scratching sounds were frightening, but not as terrifying as the noises that followed. It was not uncommon for the bells to be awakened in the darkness by a noise like smacking lips, gulping sounds and eerie gurgling and choking, sounds seemingly made by a human throat although no living person was present. The nerves of the Bell family were beginning to unravel as the sounds became a nightly occurrence. The inhuman sounds were followed by unseen hands that began to plague the household. They troubled Betsy more than anyone else household items were broken and blankets were yanked from the beds, hair was pulled and the children were slapped and poked, causing them to cry in pain. Betsy was once slapped so hard that her cheeks remained bright red for hours. Whatever the cause of this unseen force, the violence of it seemed to be especially directed at Betsy Bell. She would often run screaming from her room in terror as the unseen hands prodded pinched and poked her. Strangely, it would be noticed later that the force became even crueler to Betsy after she entertained her young suitor, Joshua Gardner. For some reason, the spirit seemed to want to punish her whenever Joshua would call. By this time, John Bell was out of ideas and explanations for the mysterious occurrences. To make matters worse, he had also begun to develop a nervous condition that affected his tongue and jaw muscles. This affliction caused him great difficulty when trying to chew and swallow. When his doctor's treatments failed to help him, he started to believe that the illness was caused by the unknown force that had invaded his home. Desperately seeking answers, he realized that he needed to appeal to someone outside the household for assistance. At this point, Bell decided to enlist help from his friend and neighbor James Johnson. At Bell's request, Johnson and his wife came to spend the night at the Bell Farm, determined to conduct an investigation that would lead them to the bottom of the events. That night, as everyone prepared to go to bed, Johnson, who was a devout Christian, read a chapter from the Bible and prayed fervently for the family to be delivered from the frightful disturbances or at least for their origins to be revealed. Almost as soon as the candles were extinguished, the strange sounds began, and this time they were even more violent, as though to show Johnson just what the force was capable of. The gnawing, Knocking and scratching sounds began immediately and the disturbances continued to escalate as chairs overturned, blankets were yanked from their beds, and objects flew from one side of the room to the other. James Johnson listened attentively to all the sounds and closely observed the other incidents that were taking place. He realized from the sounds of teeth grinding and the smacking of lips that an intelligent force seemed to be at work. He was determined to try and communicate with it and finally called out, In the name of the Lord! Who or what are you? What do you want and why are you here? As though shocked, the disturbances suddenly halted and the house remained quiet for some time. Unfortunately, the peace didn't last, and the violence began again with the covers being ripped from one of the beds. The disturbances moved from room to room, settling in for an attack against Betsy Bell. The hapless young girl was slapped and pummeled mercilessly. When the events of the evening finally came to a halt, Bell's wife and children, along with Johnson's wife, retired to bed, hoping to find at least some restless sleep. John Bell and James Johnson sat up late into the early morning hours huddled around a candle in the front room. They whispered back and forth as Johnson tried to make some sense of what he had witnessed that night. He arrived at the conclusion that the phenomenon was definitely beyond his comprehension. He did believe, however, that it possessed an uncanny intelligence based on the fact that it had ceased action when spoken to. By this, Johnson deduced that it could understand language. He advised Bell to invite his other friends into the investigation and Bell took his advice. They formed a committee to investigate whatever was going on in the house. John Bell had chosen these men with care and had apparently chosen well as each one of them stayed at his side until the very end. Regardless of the diligence of the committee, the household was soon in chaos word began to spread of the strange events and friends, even strangers, flocked to the farm to see what was happening. Dozens of people heard the clear bangings and rapping sounds and inexplicably lights were reported in the yard as chunks of rock and wood were thrown at the curious guests. From all over Kentucky and Tennessee came exorcists and witch-finders all of them confidently claiming that they could expel the evil force from the Bell House. Their efforts were all in vain, as the disturbances soon had them fleeing from the premises. The committee, formed by Bell, Johnson, and their friends, continued to search for answers. They set up experiments trying to communicate with the force, and they kept a close eye on all of the events that took place. They set up watches that lasted throughout the night. But it did no good. If anything, the attacks increased in violence. Betsy was treated brutally, and she began to have fainting spells and sensations of the breath being sucked out of her body. She was scratched and her flesh would bleed as though she was being pierced with invisible pins and needles. Meanwhile, James Johnson continued with his investigations and theories of the Force being controlled by an intelligent being of some sort. He, along with the other members of the committee, began speaking to the Witch as they had begun calling it, asking it to speak and tell them what it wanted. Questions were asked which required either yes or no answers, or which could be answered with numbers and the replies would come in knocks or raps, as if an invisible fist were tapping on the wall. This went on for some time as the committee members continued to pepper the witch with questions, daring the presence to speak. First, it whispered, as if it could not catch its breath. Then faint words began to be formed, but they could not be understood, at least not at first. But the voice of the witch began to be clearly heard, and soon the disembodied voice was coming from right out of thin air. When the questioners demanded to know who the witch was, the voice stated that it was variously a spirit whose rest had been disturbed, an ancient ghost, a murdered traveler, and much more. It lied, laughed, and made eerie predictions of future events. Excitement in the community grew as word spread of the witch's increasing number of communications. People came from around the area and from far-flung regions to hear the unexplained voice. The stories attracted believers in the unknown who credited the spirit as being the ghost of an Indian, an evil spirit, and even the result of genuine witchcraft. The accounts also brought skeptics who came to the Bell farm intent on exposing the haunting as a hoax. Most of them ended up leaving in a state of puzzlement, while others expressed their opinions about the witch. Some charged that the voice was sort of trickery, being worked by the Bell family in order to draw crowds to the farm and make money off of them. However, this was not the case. The throngs who came to the farm paid no admission and the Bells allowed them to stay as long as they wished. Most were fed, their horses fed and stabled, and many stayed the night in a warm bed. No one ever left the farm hungry, and while many offered to pay for their meals, Bell refused to accept their money. Even his friends tried to convince him to accept the donations, insisting that he could not afford to keep entertaining hordes of strangers, but Bell refused to take the money he never considered the witch a wonder or an object of delight. He thought of the creature as an affliction and her presence in the house as a calamity of a most dire nature. His sense of honor did not allow him to accept money so that visitors could witness something so terrible. Perhaps the most famous visitor to the Bell home was General Andrew Jackson, who would go on to become President of the United States. Jackson was a national hero at the time of his visit to the Bell Farm, having won the Battle of New Orleans during the final days of the War of 1812. John Bell, Jr. had served on Jackson's staff during the war, and when Jackson heard about his young friend's troubles, he journeyed from nearby Nashville to see the events for himself. He went away from the farm convinced that something supernatural was at work and later stated that he would rather face the might of the British army than the wrath of the Bell Witch. The violent events continued in the house. Objects still moved about at will and most disturbing, of course, were the continued attacks on Betsy Bell and the physical ailments that plagued John Bell. Strangely, the witch would sometimes regard Betsy with tenderness, only to attack her with terrible ferocity later that same day. The attacks were especially severe after a visit by Joshua Gardner. These incidents would leave her utterly exhausted and lifeless, and she would lose consciousness for up to 40 minutes at a time. The attacks on Betsy were serious, but they were nothing compared to the problems suffered by John Bell. During the first year of the haunting, Bell began to complain of a curious numbness in his mouth that caused his tongue to become stiff and to swell. In fact, his tongue and throat became so swollen that he would be unable to eat for days at a time. He even had difficulty drinking water, which added to his discomfort. As the haunting progressed, he began to come down with other unexplainable symptoms, most notably the bizarre ticks and twitches that would seize his face and make it impossible for him to eat or talk. These odd seizures would last anywhere from a few hours to as long as a week. However, once they passed, he would be in good health until the next attack came along. The spells gradually increased, both in length and in severity, and undoubtedly helped carry the man to his grave. The opposite was the case for Betsy Bell. It seemed that as her father's troubles increased, her afflictions began to go away. But why was John Bell targeted? This remains a mystery, but from the very beginning of the haunting, the witch had made it clear that she was going to get old Jack Bell and would torment him until the end of his life. In addition to his illness, Bell was also physically abused by the witch, and many witnesses would recall him being slapped by unseen hands or crying out in pain as he was prodded and stabbed with invisible pins. Whenever Bell's name was mentioned in the presence of the spirit, she would begin screaming and would call Bell every vile and offensive name she could muster up. It was obvious that she violently hated him, and his torment would only end with his death. Bell's doctor was helpless when it came to finding a cure for the seizures and ailments, the witch laughed at his efforts and declared that she was the cause of John Bell's problems and no medicine existed which could cure him. The witch seemed determined to torment John Bell any way that she could, but refused to say why she hated him. At one time, she claimed that she had been a sort of curse that had been sent to plague Bell by a woman named Kate Batts, a local eccentric with whom Bell had a business dispute over some slaves. Bats may have hated Bell, but there's no evidence to say that she ever tried to harm him by sending the witch to bedevil him. In fact, when she heard that she was being slandered in such a manner, she demanded that charges be pressed against John Bell, as she was sure that this was his way of trying to discredit her in the community. After nearly four years of the haunting, John Bell continued to suffer from severe afflictions of the body. By late 1820, his physical condition had grown even worse. The jerking and twitching of his face still continued, as did the swelling of his tongue and the seizures that left him nearly paralyzed for days at a time. The spells became even more violent, and toward the end of his life, one of his sons, Richard Williams Bell, accompanied him everywhere he went. The family feared that a seizure would come up on him while working, and if no one was with him, he might fall and be injured. Around the middle of October, Bell once again became ill. This time, the spell lasted for eight days and he was confined to his bed the entire time. During his convalescence, the spirit stayed by his side. She raved and cursed in the sick room like a maniac, bothering him so that he could not rest and wishing loudly that he would simply die and leave the world a better place. But once again, John Bell managed to prevail, and he came out of the sickness, but not for long. A week later, he was again attacked by the witch, and his paralysis returned. This time when he took to his bed, never to leave it again. Bell slipped into a deep, pain-wracked sleep, only occasionally broken by convulsions caused by his seizures and by brief moments of clarity When he was able to eat and speak with his family. The spirit remained nearby the entire time, laughing and cursing at the dying man. On December 20, 1820, John Bell breathed his last. On the morning of the 19th, Bell failed to rise as he had every other morning. As sick as he was, he never failed to stir and take some sort of sustenance, even if it was only water and bread. On this morning, however, he did not awaken. Lucy went to check on him and it appeared that he was sleeping very soundly. She decided to let him rest for a bit longer while she made him some breakfast. She returned an hour later and gently touched her husband on the shoulder, but he did not wake up. Bell had lapsed into a coma. Lucy called for the family and John Jr. ran into the bedroom he went to the cabinet where Bell's medicine was kept. His father had gone through similar periods before and usually a dose of his medicine would revive him. When John opened the cabinet, he discovered that all of the medicines that had been prescribed to his father had vanished. In their place was a small, smoky-looking vial that was about one-third full of a dark-colored liquid. He asked if anyone in the house had moved the medicine but all denied touching it or even knowing what medicine had been there. No one had any idea what may have been in the vial. Bell's doctor was sent for, but neither he nor any of Bell's friends could identify the vial. The group gathered around the sickbed and continued to try and raise Bell from his stupor. Just then the spirit's voice split the air of the room and she told them that Belle would not be awakened she admitted that she had placed the dark vial in the medicine cupboard and had given him a large dose of it while he was sleeping. This was all the information that she would give in regard to the liquid. No one had any idea where it may have come from or how John Bell had managed to ingest it. It was possible that Bell, awake and restless in the middle of the night and looking for his medicine, may have swallowed the contents of the vial by mistake. Even so, where it had come from was still unexplained. Someone suggested that the mysterious liquid be tested on something. One of the men disappeared outside and quickly returned with one of the barn cats that could be found roaming the property. John Jr. dipped a straw into the vial and drew it through the cat's mouth, wiping the dark liquid on the struggling animal's tongue. The cat jumped out of his arms as if it had been prodded with a hot poker it whirled about a few times and then fell to the floor, its legs kicking in the air. The cat was dead in less than a minute. Whatever was in the bottle, it appeared to be deadly. There's more of this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness still to come. Our next Weirdo Watch Party is Saturday, August 14th, and it's gonna be doubly weird as we'll be watching the Weirdness Really Bad movie hosted by Dave Binkley as he'll be bringing us 1965's The Yesterday Machine, starring a whole bunch of actors you've never heard of. It's about a Nazi scientist who invents a time machine which enables him to go back and alter the events of World War II. Seeing as the Nazis lost World War II, I'm thinking we'll be rooting for the people trying to stop him. OR maybe he's a good-hearted Nazi who has seen the error of his ways and wants to go back and tell Hitler that's all a really bad idea. ***Yeah, okay, never mind, You know what? that idea sounds boring. Let's hope it's the crazy Nazi scientist storyline. Our host Dave Binkley has actually been nominated for the 2021 Horror Host Hall of Fame, so you know we're in for a good time. Join us 9 p.m. Central Time on Saturday, August 14th as we watch the horrible movie, laugh at and with the horror host, and web chat our own jokes during the flick. Again, it's Saturday, August 14th, 7 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. in Hawaii, 3 a.m. in the UK on the Monster Channel page at WeirdDarkness.com. Bell lay all day and through the night in a coma and could not be roused to swallow any medicine that might counteract the effects of the drug. The doctor was sure that he had taken or had been given the contents of the bottle as Bell's breath smelled the same as the liquid in the vial. In the throes of despair, the vial and its contents were cast into the fire. A blue blaze shot up into the chimney like a flash of powder. John Bell never regained consciousness, and early on the morning of December 20th, he took one last shuddering breath and died. His final moments were met by great joy from the witch. She laughed heartily and expressed the hope that Bell would burn in hell. With those chilling words, she departed and was not heard from again until after the funeral. The burial was held a few days later, and it had been said that the funeral was the largest ever held in Robertson County before or since. Bell was laid to rest in a small cemetery a short distance from the Bell house. After the grave was filled and the mourners began to walk away, the voice of Kate returned, echoing loudly in the cold morning air. She was singing at the top of her spectral lungs, celebrating the death of John Bell as the last of the family and their friends entered the house. This ended the most terrifying chapter of the haunting and marked the case of the Bell Witch in the annals of supernatural history forever. It became one of the only cases ever recorded in which a spirit was responsible for the death of one of the principals in the case. After the death of John Bell, The witch largely seemed to lose interest in everyone in the family, except for Betsy Bell. During the entire haunting, it was made clear that Betsy would be punished as long as she continued to allow herself to be courted by Joshua Gardner. After the death of John Bell, however, Betsy and Gardner began to believe that perhaps the witch might allow them to be together in peace. As it had been with John Bell, the witch had never made it clear just why she disliked Joshua Gardner so much. She simply hated him and never explained why. Kate spent a great amount of time pleading with Betsy to end her relationship with him and also made it clear that she would beat the girl until she did so, as if she were punishing the girl for her own good. Once the violence of the haunting had subsided somewhat, Betsy and Joshua began to renew their relationship Which had previously cooled thanks to the witch. On Easter Sunday of 1821, the two of them celebrated the holiday by becoming engaged, much to the delight of their families and friends. The following day, the young couple with a group of friends decided to go fishing and to have a picnic along the Red River. The young people had settled down along the riverbank when Richard Powell appeared, Powell was in the midst of campaigning to represent Robertson County in the Tennessee legislature and had heard about the picnic. As all of those attending were former students of his, he had an excuse to join them. Powell was aware of Betsy's engagement to Joshua Gardner. He was still in love with the young woman and only felt that their age difference was keeping them apart. He asked her if he could speak to her alone for a moment, and when she agreed, he confessed his attraction to her. Betsy's only reply was to promise him an invitation to the wedding. A short time later, the dejected teacher left. After lunch, the couples all decided to do a little fishing, and Joshua and Betsy sat down on a large rock and cast a line into the water. A few minutes later, the line was seized, and it and the pole were jerked into the river. At that moment, the familiar voice of the witch rang out, and pleaded with Betsy not to marry Joshua Gardner. The plea was repeated two more times, and then the voice faded away. This must have been the breaking point for Betsy. She must have finally realized that the witch was never going to leave her alone as long as she continued to stay with Gardner. She had seen what the creature had done to her father, and she cared about Joshua too much to see the same thing happen to him. Kate had already shown what she was capable of, and for Betsy to marry Gardner would mean risking his life as well. Thus ended the engagement of Elizabeth Bell and Joshua Gardner. The two of them parted that afternoon, and as far as history states, they never saw one another again. After arranging his affairs, Joshua Gardner departed from Robertson County and went to live in western Tennessee at a place called Gardner's Station. He lived a long and successful life, married twice and died in 1887 at the age of 84. Whether or not he ever thought of Betsy Bell is unknown. Shortly after Gardner's departure from the region, Richard Powell came calling at Betsy's door. The young girl was depressed for some time but eventually succumbed to Powell's attentions and agreed to marry him. The former teacher was much older than Betsy, but no one frowned on the marriage, including the spirit, who showed her approval by keeping silent. The couple eventually married in 1824. Powell later made it into public office, serving as a sheriff and as a member of the Tennessee legislature. In 1837, he suffered a massive stroke and his care left the family nearly destitute. He died in 1848, and Betsy remained a widow for the rest of her years. As time passed, the mystery of the Bell Witch would continue to be discussed, and rumors claimed that Betsy may have somehow been responsible for these strange occurrences on the farm. As one generation passed into the next, and eyewitnesses died who could have refuted such claims, the case achieved the status of legend. In 1849, the Saturday Evening Post published a lengthy story about the case written by a reporter who made it appear that Betsy had been the culprit behind the haunting. Betsy sued the paper, and the story was retracted. In 1875, Betsy moved to Panola County, Mississippi, where one of her children and other relatives lived. She died there in 1890 at the age of 86. She never heard from the Bell Witch again. The Bell Witch remained active in the region until 1821. She had little interaction with the family after Bell's death, aside from brief visitations. The spirit apparently refused to help John Bell, Jr. communicate with his deceased father, declaring that the dead could not be brought back. However, on one occasion she told John to go to the window and look out onto a snowy field. As he did, he saw footprints appear in the snow, which the spirit claimed were identical to those made by his father's boots. John did not bother to test this claim. One evening while the family was eating supper, there was a tremendous noise in the chimney as if a cannonball had rolled down it and out into the room. Whatever it was burst into a ball of smoke. The witch's voice rang out and told the bells that she was leaving but would return in seven years. With that, the haunting effectively came to an end. In 1828, only Lucy Bell and two of her sons remained in the homestead, although John Jr. lived nearby and would receive the majority of the witch's new manifestations. Things started again, as they originally had, with scratching, items moved around and covers pulled from the bed. However, since Betsy had long since moved away, and John Bell was dead, the witch seemed to have no one to torment. Lucy and her sons ignored the new happenings, and within two weeks the manifestations stopped. John Jr. claimed that the witch visited him several times in his home, allegedly making prophecies of future events, from the Civil War to the end of the world. She also promised to return in 107 years and plague one of his descendants but 1935 came and went without an appearance by the Bell Witch. Over the years, there have been many theories as to who or what the Bell Witch actually was. The theories have ranged from an elaborate hoax to a haunting by an actual spirit. Beginning in the 1930s, many renowned writers and psychologists theorized that the Bell Witch was not the ghost that so many believed it to be. But the haunting experienced at the Bell Farm was caused by the unconscious effects of Betsy Bell's mind. They believed that the activity was unconsciously caused by Betsy, who, as a teenager, was the right age for poltergeist manifestations of power. They also surmised that her religious and moral upbringing could have caused her suppressed sexual energies to act out in a manner that would allay her guilty feelings, especially where Joshua Gardner was concerned. The spirit punished Betsy for her impure thoughts about Gardner, even going as far to cause their relationship to end for supernatural reasons. The idea is certainly plausible. The connections between sexual impulses and repressed energy have long been discussed and frankly are quite believable in some cases. But is it a credible idea in the Bell Witch Haunting? it doesn't seem likely. Even if we ignore the fact that much of the activity occurred while Betsy Bell was not even present, we are still left with her age bracket as the only solid evidence that her mind was at work. Dr. Nandor Fodor, the esteemed expert on poltergeists and their human agents, formulated a theory in the 1930s that suggested that Betsy Bell was responsible for the haunting. Fodor was not only a researcher of the supernatural but also a Freudian psychiatrist who took the view that the haunting was sexual in nature. His theory was that Betsy had developed a secondary personality in the form of a mental force, gifted with both ESP and telekinesis, or the ability to move solid objects by thought. The personality could exert physical force but was not physical in nature. He believed that a deep-seated hatred, even an unconscious one, could create such a personality and that it could be mistaken for an avenging ghost. Fodor believed that the secondary personality, which he called Betsy X, was created after the girl began to be sexually molested by her father, John Bell. The personality then took over her physical form in an effort to exact the revenge that Betsy wanted. Fodor pointed out correctly that Betsy's fainting spells closely mirrored the symptoms exhibited by spiritualist mediums when they went into trances. He believed that Betsy, like naturally gifted mediums, was able to channel her budding sexual energy into a mysterious force that wreaked havoc in the household. John Bell's illness started at the time of the first disturbances. He suffered at first from a mere facial tick which grew to the proportions, Fodor stated, of a hysterical attack. The seizures served two purposes. They prevented him from eating and from talking, but the latter was the most important. Eating seldom gets anyone into trouble, but speaking does, especially if they have a guilty secret. If such a secret needed to be kept silent, a seizure of the type suffered by John Bell would serve the purpose. Fodor did not believe that it was a coincidence that Bell's attacks occurred at the same time as Betsy's spells. Fodor also suggested that Bell's attacks were not due to the spirit, but represented a brutal self-aggression evidence of which he found in some of the interviews that were given to author M. V. Ingram when he wrote a book on the case in 1894. During an interview with Ingram, Mrs. Martha Dearden, the daughter of one of Bell's friends, recalled that Bell behaved strangely on an occasion when her father invited him to dinner. He shook his head without saying anything and seemed to be morose and confused. The following day, he rode over to the house and apologized for his behavior, saying that he felt his tongue swell up in his mouth so that he was unable to eat or talk. At the time of this incident, the haunting had not yet begun. Fodor inferred that Bell's unconsciousness was already stirring when the poltergeist made its first appearance. The alleged incestuous union had disastrous results. John Bell suffered the torments of his own conscience, creating the physical ailments that plagued and eventually killed him. Betsy, tortured by shock, betrayal, and guilt, created the secondary personality, which became the witch. Unfortunately, Fodor's speculations about the case sounded far more convincing in the 1930s than they do today, when Freud is no longer regarded as being infallible. Thanks to this, among other things, Fodor's theory hardly holds up to examination. First, it should be noted that absolutely no evidence exists which says that incest between John Bell and his daughter ever occurred. In devising his theory, Fodor, was drawing on his own years of clinical experience and simply took numerous pieces of evidence and placed them into a pattern that he had seen many times before. He believed that Betsy's hatred of her father expressed itself as a psychokinetic energy, but this could not explain all of the events in the case. The presence not only moved objects about, but it spoke as well. It also had a definite character and personality, one that sharply differed from Betsy's. It also failed to explain why Betsy was treated so badly in the beginning of the haunting, how incidents managed to occur when she was not present in the house, and how the witch managed to return after Betsy had married and left home. There is no denying that a sexual poltergeist is certainly an intriguing idea, but whether or not it fits in the case of the Bell Witch is open to conjecture and opinion. My own opinion about the cause behind the Bell witch hauntings differs sharply from that of Fodor and others who believe the case as a normal, albeit strange, solution. I believe that the witch was a spirit that was disturbed in the fall of 1817 after Drew Bell and a local boy named Corbin Hall dug into a Native American grave that was located on the farm. History is filled with stories of locations that became haunted after Indian burial grounds are disturbed or destroyed, and I believe this is exactly what happened in this case. When the witch first began to communicate with John Bell's committee, it stated that it was a spirit whose rest had been disturbed. Even though the presence went on to claim a number of other identities, I believe that it might have been telling the truth initially. If so, It might also explain the lingering haunting that still continues on the property today. You see, the Indian burial ground was located about a mile from the Bell House and directly over the entrance to the cave that draws many visitors to the location today. It's this cave that, I believe, is one of the most haunted spots in America. The Bell Witch Cave, as it has come to be called, is located on a steep bluff overlooking the Red River on land that was once part of the Bell Farm. Thanks to local legend, many people have come to believe that when the spirit of the witch departed after tormenting the Bell family, it went into this cave. Others, myself included, believe that the cave and the burial ground above it is where the spirit originated. This may or may not be the case, but I can tell you that with a large number of bizarre incidents reported in and around the cave in modern times, notions of the witch still lingering in the area may not be as odd as you might think. While the cave has become quite famous in recent years, there is little mention of it in contemporary accounts of the haunting. It is believed that the cave might have been used for the cool storage of food in those pre-refrigerator days thanks to the fact that it remains a constant 56 degrees. It was also mentioned in some accounts that Kate's voice was often heard nearby, and one day, Betsy Bell and several of her friends had a close encounter with the witch inside the cave. The cave itself is located in the center of a large bluff that overlooks the river. The mouth of the cave opens widely, but entrance to the cavern itself must be gained through a fairly long tunnel. The cave is not large compared to most commercial caves. However, its true length is unknown because of narrow passages that go beyond the 500 or so feet accessible to visitors. In wet weather, a stream gushes from the mouth of the cavern and tumbles over a cliff into the river below. This makes the cave dangerous and nearly impossible to navigate during heavy rainstorms. Those who venture inside are unable to communicate with one another as even shouted conversations become inaudible over the roar of the water. In dry times, though, the cave has been proven to be quite an attraction to curiosity seekers and ghost hunters. Once you pass through the entrance passage, the visitor enters a large chamber that opens into yet another tunnel and an overhead passageway. Another large room can be found at the rear of the explored portion of the cave where the few rock formations can be found. But from that point on, the tunnels become smaller, narrower, and much more dangerous. The Bell Witch Cave became an attraction thanks largely to the late Wayne M. Bill Eden, who owned the property for a number of years. Eden was a wealth of information about the cave and about the fact that strange occurrences were continuing to take place on the land that once belonged to John Bell primarily a farmer, Eden made some early improvements to the cave by adding electrical lights, but that was about all. I first heard about the cave in the early 1980s, and as I mentioned previously, I convinced my parents to make a side trip to Adams while on a family vacation one summer. It was not an easy place to find, and it was certainly less developed than other caves my family had visited over the years, but we found Bill Eden happy to show us around. Eden was always puzzled as to how people found the place. We asked for directions and Adams, because in those days there were no signs to point the way. Eden made a great tour guide, spinning stories about the famous hauntings and his own weird experiences on the property. If it was not the Bell Witch that was still hanging around this place, he maintained, then it was haunted for another reason entirely. Regardless, he said it was definitely haunted. Bill Eden had many strange experiences on the property, and he witnessed other seemingly inexplicable events that happened to visitors to the cave. In one instance, a woman brought along a group of friends and about 15 people followed Eden down the rather treacherous path to the cave's entrance. All at once, the woman in charge of the group abruptly sat down in the middle of the path. When one of her companions asked why she was sitting there, she claimed that a heavy weight was pressing her down to the ground and she couldn't get up. Several members of the group managed to get her to her feet and the alarmed woman was half carried back up the hill to her car. Bill Eden could also recount a number of encounters he had on his own in the cave. You can hear footsteps in there all the time and I saw one thing, he once said in an interview, Lots of people come out here expecting to see a ghost or a witch or whatever you want to call it. I just call it a spirit, and it looked like a person with its back turned to you. Looked like it was built out of a real white looking heavy fog or snow or something real solid white. But you couldn't see through it. It had the complete figure of a person till it got down to about its ankles. It wasn't touching the floor at all, it was just drifting bouncing along. Many people come to the cave after hearing the stories of the Bell Witch hoping to see or experience a ghost. While many of them go away disappointed, some get a little more than they bargained for. Eden had taken a group of young people into the cave one evening for a tour. They had been inside for about an hour and had stopped in the back room where they talked for a while and Bill told of his own experiences. As they were starting to leave, one of the girls in the group started to make some remarks about the authenticity of the place, questioning whether or not it was really haunted. She expressed disappointment that nothing out of the ordinary had happened. She continued to complain as she walked into the narrow passage connecting the two rooms. Everyone else in the group seemed to be having a good time. There were the usual squeals, giggles, and fake scary noises that Eden was used to when young people toured the cave. The girl who was complaining was walking directly in front of Eden at this point. All of a sudden, she stumbled backwards as if she had been pushed. She took a couple of steps back and then sat down hard on the floor of the cave. "'Somebody slapped me!' the girl yelled. Eden shook his head. "'You must have bumped your head.' he told her and explained that the ceiling is pretty low in spots and sometimes people had to duck down to avoid being injured. No, the girl insisted. I didn't bump my head. Whatever it was hit me on the jaw. Eden helped the girl to her feet, still skeptical, and they all moved to the front room of the cave. Once there, he shined his light on her face to see how badly she'd been hurt. He looked at her cheek and was surprised to see a red welt and the prints of fingers that were still visible where she had been struck. He certainly had no explanation for how bumping her head on a low ceiling could have accomplished that. In the early summer of 1977, several soldiers from Fort Campbell, Kentucky came to visit the cave. Eden took the young men on a tour and ended up in the back room where all of them sat around talking and Eden told his stories of the odd events on the farm one of the men politely expressed some doubts about the validity of the Bell Witch story. He said he had visited many places that were supposedly haunted and nothing out of the ordinary had ever occurred to him. Eden laughed and shrugged his shoulders. The man could believe whatever he wanted to, but as for Bill, well, he had seen enough things on the farm to know that something unexplainable was going on. If something happened, you probably wouldn't ever come back here again. Bill added with a grin. The group sat and talked for a short while longer, and then they all got up to leave. All that is except for the young man who had expressed his disbelief in ghosts. Mr. Eden, come here and help me, the soldier said. I can't get up. Eden and the man's friends all assumed that he was joking, and they began to laugh. It wasn't until Bill took a close look at the man that he realized that something really was wrong. The young man was now begging for help, and his face was drenched so badly with sweat that it looked like someone had poured a bucket of water over him. When Eden took hold of his hand to help him up, he could feel the man's hand was cold and clammy, as if he were going into shock. The soldier continued to call for help, claiming he could feel strong arms wrapped around his chest. They were squeezing him so tightly, he said, that he was unable to breathe. Eden and the other men helped him to his feet, and while the soldiers supported him, Bill wiped his face off with some runoff water from the cave. When the soldiers started feeling better, they took him outside. By the time they were ready to leave, the young man had completely recovered and was suffering no ill effects from his harrowing experience. As he was heading to his car, though, he stopped and shook Bill Eden's hand. Well, you were right about one thing, Mr. Eden, the young soldier said. I won't ever be back here again. There's more of this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness still to come. If you or someone you know struggles with depression or dark thoughts, I'd like to recommend the Hope in the Darkness page at WeirdDarkness.com. There, I've gathered resources to help fight depression with the 7 Cups app, connecting you with people who've also struggled with depression and are there to lift you up, even professional listeners there to listen at all hours of the day. If you're having dark thoughts of harming yourself or worse, there's the Suicide Prevention Lifeline that you can either call or chat online with anytime, 24-7. The folks at ifred.org are doing what they can with research and education on depression to give us the tools we need to fight against it in the days ahead. And if you feel a lack of hope in your life, take the 30-Day Global Hope Challenge. It's absolutely free. You can do it alone or with a friend or with a group. And after 30 days, you'll have a better understanding of how to build hope in your own life and in the life of others. You can find all of this on the Hope in the Darkness page at WeirdDarkness.com. The winter rains in Tennessee wreak havoc on the Bell Witch Cave, which is why Bill Eden and the current owners usually only opened the cave during the summer and early autumn months. Each spring, Bill always had a lot of work to do on the floor of the cave, where the rushing water had carved out small holes and ditches. One Sunday morning, Eden had taken some tools some distance into the cave and was working to try and level out some damaged portions of the floor. He was smoothing over the gravel when he heard an odd noise coming from behind him in the deeper recesses of the cave. In the darkness, he could hear the distinct sound of someone walking down the passage, feet crunching in the gravel on the floor. The sounds kept coming, moving toward him until they stopped a few feet away. Eden strained his eyes to peer into the shadows, but he could see no one there. "'Something I can do for you?' he called out. But he got no answer. He called again, but still no answer came. A little unnerved, he picked up his tools and decided to work near the entrance to the cave, where it was much lighter for a little while. He walked up front, and as he passed through the first room, he noticed his dog sleeping on the little ledge over on the left side of the room. For the next 30 minutes or so, Eden worked on the floor between the iron gate at the mouth of the cave and the first room. He had just stopped for a moment to rest when he heard the familiar footsteps tracking through the gravel once more. They were once again coming from the back of the cave and quickly approached the first room where Bill's dog was sleeping. Suddenly, the animal's ears pricked up, and he jumped to his feet. The hackles rose on the back of his neck, and Bill saw his lips curl back, revealing the dog's teeth. The animal didn't move. He just stood there, looking directly at the spot where the footsteps had last been heard. Then the gravel began crunching again, and the sounds moved forward in the direction of where Bill was standing. As the footsteps moved past the dog, his head moved as though watching someone that Eden was unable to see. The footsteps came directly toward Bill, passed by him, and then continued to the outside of the cave. Immediately after, both Bill and the dog hurried outside into the sunlight. He admitted later that he did not have the nerve to go back inside right away, nor for several days afterward. From that time on, that particular dog never entered the main part of the cave again. He would follow people to the steel gate, but then he would either wait there or return outside. Whatever he had seen that day had frightened him away for good. Just about anyone who visits the Bell Witch Cave and who brings along a camera wants to snap a photograph of the entrance to the cave. This is a beautiful, although shadowy and forbidding, spot. As you walk down the gravel path from the top of the bluff and cross the last wooden walkway, you find yourself standing just outside the cave's gaping mouth. The overhanging rock succeeds in cutting off most of the view of the overhead sky, and a damp chill filters out from the cave, provoking goose pimples on exposed skin. Behind you, over the edge of the bluff, you can hear the dull roar of the Red River, you can't help but ponder the distance to the water below. If you've brought a camera along, this would be the perfect opportunity to use it. By standing back toward the spot where the bluff comes to a sudden end, you should be able to take a photo of the cave entrance and the rocks overhead. You may have noticed that I said you should be able to take such a photograph. The problem is many people are never able to do so. Hundreds of visitors have tried and failed. For some reason, there is a spot outside the cave where not only cameras fail, but sometimes flashlights and batteries refuse to work. This isn't always the case. Most cameras work just fine, but others refuse to operate or, stranger yet, manage to produce photos that are bizarre, to say the least. Even in Bill Eden's time, the cave entrance was hard to photograph. One day, after finishing a tour of the cave, a man was standing and talking to Bill and he asked one of his sons to pose for a picture in front of the cave. The boy took his dog and stood near a large rock in front of the cave. The man was using a brand new Polaroid camera and he had taken a number of good photos inside the cave. He asked Bill to hold on to the developed shots while he took another one. The man then aimed the camera at the boy and snapped the photo. After the photo developed, the gentleman noticed something strange about the picture. The photo showed the dog and the lower part of the boy's body, but the boy's head and shoulders were missing. It looked as though someone had stretched a white, cloudy sheet from one side of the cave to the other, completely covering the boy's face. A young woman named Leslie Say had a similar experience at the entrance of the cave in 1989. A friend of hers was visiting from up north and wanted to see the sights of Middle Tennessee. Since Leslie lived in Clarksville at the time, she decided to take her to Bell Witch Cave. No tours were being offered at the time. Bill Eden had passed away and the current owners had not yet bought the property. However, Leslie and her friend convinced the caretakers to allow them to go down and take a look at the cave, providing they promised not to go inside. They hiked down the trail and ended up in front of the cave entrance. There's a large rock that rests directly in front of the entrance, and Leslie's friend decided that she wanted her photo taken while sitting on it. Leslie obliged and snapped the picture, and then the two of them walked back up the bluff and let the caretakers know that they had returned safely. About two weeks later, I sent the film to be developed, Leslie told me. When I picked up the pictures, the girl told me that one of the photos did not process correctly and that I did not have to pay for it. I didn't look at the pictures until I got to my mother's house. As we were going through them, my mother said that one in her hand looked rather odd. She handed the photograph to her daughter, and Leslie felt a chill go down her spine. The photo was the one that she had taken of her friend on the rock outside the Bell Witch Cave. The photograph was perfectly ordinary, except for the fact that a large white mist was looming over her friend's head. It looked almost like a death shroud, Leslie remembered. Growing up, I had always heard stories about the bell witch, but we always considered them to be ghost stories to be told while roasting marshmallows around the campfire. Not until that photo was taken did I ever believe them. The current owners have a scrapbook of strange photos they've taken along with the photos that are sent to them by people who have visited the cave. They receive dozens of them every year, some showing strange balls of light, misty shapes and fogs. Then there are the really weird photos, photos that simply have no explanation at all. Many of these have been taken outside the entrance to the cave. One such photo shows a girl seated outside the cave on a large rock. The photo also shows the apparition of a boy who seems to be looming directly behind her. Despite the odd configuration of the images in the photo, it does not appear to be a double exposure. Another photo was taken of two Girl Scouts during a trip to the cave. In the photo, one of the girls is visible, but the other is only partially present and she appears in the photo turned at an impossible angle. Worse yet is the completely unexplainable image of a two-headed snake that is slithering up the leg of the first girl. Obviously, this was not there when the photo was taken and how it could have appeared in the photograph is totally without explanation. Other photos, including the one that I believe is the strangest of all, were taken elsewhere on the property. This leads me to believe that perhaps the odd aura of the cave permeates the entire farm. This particular photo was taken on the bluff above the cave, where the current owners have a small gift shop and picnic pavilion. One fall afternoon, a party of sixth graders visited the cave from one of the schools in the area. After touring the cave, the children paused for a group photo at the gift shop. One of the chaperones snapped a photo with the teacher's camera, and the group departed. The teacher didn't plan to contact the owners of the cave again, except to perhaps schedule another class trip someday. But then she developed her film from that afternoon. When she flipped through the packet of photographs, she spotted the group photo that had been taken but thought nothing of it. Then something odd caught her eye and she looked again. The class, teacher and chaperones had lined up in a couple of rows across the picnic pavilion as they posed for the photo. At first glance, there was nothing wrong with the photo until she realized that one of the children in the front row was missing. He had definitely been there when the photo was taken, but in the developed print there was simply nothing and no one in his spot. The child who had been sitting next to him even had an outstretched arm around the boy's shoulder, or would have if the boy had been there. Instead, the arm was simply suspended in the air, holding on to absolutely nothing. The teacher and the cave's owner, who had been present at the time, had no explanation. The teacher had sworn that this is no practical joke. She is as befuddled by the photograph as those who have studied it are. The only explanation is that this is just one more anomaly of the Bell Witch Cave. The present-day owners of the cave and the part of the old Bell Farm made so famous by Bill Eden are Chris and Walter Kirby. The Kirbys started out as tobacco farmers and found out that running the cave is a full-time job during the summer months. They offer tours of the cave and a reproduction of the Bell Cabin as well as canoe trips on the Red River. Returning to the cave has become an annual event for me and the American Hauntings tours, and after meeting the Kirbys in 1997, I've enjoyed a great friendship with them. The Kirbys purchased their section of the Old Bell Farm in April 1993. The place had been empty for several years after the death of Bill Eden, but by that summer the cave was open again for business. Over the course of the next year or so, they made a number of improvements to the cave, which include new lights, a new electrical system, an improved path to the cave, wooden walkways to cross the most treacherous areas of the trail, and a number of other things these improvements continue today. It wasn't long after the Kirbys moved to the farm and began conducting tours in the cave that they realized things were not quite right on the property. They began to notice first that there were strange noises that didn't have an easy explanation. We've heard them in the cave and we've heard them in the house, Chris said. I feel like if there's any place that could be haunted, it's this place here, First of all, it's got the legend of being haunted. There's an Indian burial mound right above the mouth of the cave on the bluff, and the previous owner of the cave died in our bedroom. I first met Chris Kirby a few years after she and Walter bought the cave and property. I decided to return to the cave for the first time since I was a kid. The cave is a short drive outside of Adams, and after rounding a couple of curves on the gravel drive, I found myself parked in the grassy lot at the top of the bluff. In those days, the gift shop did not exist and visitors simply parked outside the Kirby home and waited until somebody came out to greet them. Behind the house is the trail that leads down to the cave and Chris took me back in that direction after we had chatted for a few minutes. As we walked along that way, we crossed an abandoned road that is really not much more than a depression in the earth now. Later, I would have a chance to walk some distance on this old road, and I would learn more about the historical footsteps that I was following. It had been this road that Andrew Jackson had traveled on when he came to visit the Bell Farm. It once linked up with an old trace, a last remaining piece of the old Nashville to Clarksville Road, but now serves as nothing more than a lane for farm equipment. It was along this stretch of road that Jackson's wagon became mysteriously stuck on his way to the Bell Farm and where he had his first encounter with the Witch. After walking past the house and across the old stagecoach road, we started down the gloomy pathway that would take us to the Bell Witch Cave. As mentioned earlier, the entrance to the cave is closed off by a locked, heavy steel gate intended to stop unauthorized visitors from entering the cave which can be very dangerous, especially in the darkness. There are many sections of the cave that remain unexplored and this fact, along with the ghost stories, proves to be a real magnet for teenagers and curiosity seekers. Chris said they always worry that someone will be hurt in there because the gate does not always stop the trespassers. They even had two break-ins within a few weeks of buying the property. In fact, the trespassing becomes so bad at certain times of the year the Kirbys have been forced to prosecute anyone caught inside the cave at night. The odd events that have occurred in the cave have often been weird and frightening to Chris, and she has told me more than once that she never goes into the cave by herself unless she absolutely has to. One day, Chris and her dog were leading a tour of the cave for a group of visitors. She was just opening the steel gate, When she heard a strange noise that was definitely not a natural sound of the cave. It sounded like real raspy breathing sounds, she said, like someone couldn't get their breath. It only lasted for a minute and then it was gone. Chris looked back to her tour group, but they were quietly talking amongst themselves and hadn't heard a thing. The tour continued through the first room, down the narrow passage and into the second room, At that point, Chris began telling stories of the witch, the haunting and strange incidents on the farm. As she was talking, the dog suddenly reacted to something that no one else could see. The hair on the animal's back stood up, and she began baring her teeth and growling. The tour group asked what was wrong with the dog, but Chris had no idea. She was finally able to calm the dog down, but then the animal began whining and tucked her tail between her legs, She cowered back against Chris, and at that same moment, the flashlight in Chris's hand suddenly went out. I guessed that it was just the battery at first, Chris remembered, but then a lady's video camera stopped working too. We were all standing there in the dark, and I'll tell you, I was ready to get out of there, and everyone else was too. Chris also told us about the strange apparitions that she and visitors to the cave have reported. Some of these shapes are misty and fog-like, sometimes appearing in different parts of the cave only to vanish when approached. She also recalled another type of image they had seen. It looked like heat waves that come up over the highway in the summertime, she explained. You can see them out of the corner of your eye and then they're gone. One of the ongoing traditions of the Bell Witch Cave involves the removal of any sort of artifact from the premises, be it rocks or anything else found inside the cave. Some believe that perhaps the energy of the area is embedded in some way within the actual makeup of the place, and by removing a portion of the cave, you are inviting the phenomena that occurred there to travel with you. Others are not so scientific. They believe that the spirit of the witch will follow anyone who removes something from the cave. It's likely that this tradition got started a number of years ago, when the remains of a young Native American woman were discovered by men doing construction work on one of the local roads. Because it is well known that the former Bell Farm contains a burial mound, it was requested that the bones of the Indian woman be entombed within the Bell Witch Cave. The remains were laid out in the first room of the cave in a shallow indentation that was then lined with limestone slabs. Unfortunately, they did not remain there for long. A short time later, trespassers made off with the bones. But according to local lore, not without a price. Gossip in the community has it that each of the persons who removed one of the relics suffered a series of misfortunes, accidents, and injuries within days of the theft. For this reason, it has come to be believed that it is bad luck to remove anything at all from the cave. Over the last several years, I have received a number of accounts from people who claim to have taken away stones from the Bell Witch Cave only to then experience not only bad luck but also an onslaught of strange happenings in their previously unhaunted homes. Chris Kirby had assured me that she has received a number of packages in the mail over the years that have contained rocks and stones that were removed from the cave. After getting their purloined souvenirs home, the folks who removed them Began to suffer all sorts of problems and weird events. They believed that by mailing the stolen items back to the cave, they might alleviate their problems. One of the strangest accounts involved a man who took away a rock from the large room in the cave in the summer of 2008. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred at first, but then he began to be plagued by a series of misfortunes, including a serious illness, injury, financial problems, and marital difficulties. He never connected the problems to the rock, he explained, until he gave it away to someone in the summer of 2009. A short time later, the new owner of the Bell Witch Cave Rock mysteriously died. The man told me that his luck had improved tremendously since he got rid of the rock, although he does have some guilt about what happened to the person he gave it to. I just keep wondering what might've happened. If I had kept the rock, he said, would that have been me who died?" We may never know, but let me advise against ever taking anything out of the Bell Witch Cave, just in case. What is it about the Bell Witch Cave and the old farm that was once owned by John Bell? Is it still haunted by the Bell Witch, or does something even stranger linger here? I can't say for sure, but I really do believe the place is haunted. You can almost feel it in the air. I have walked the land once, walked by the bells, and have stood next to the grave where John Bell is buried. I have been amazed by the beauty of the woods and hollows, and have listened to the thunder of the Red River after a hard summer rain. And I have stayed the night within the gloom of the cave, and have come to feel that something strange lurks in this place. The land is tainted in some way. I believe that there is a darkness that lurks here that is unlike anything else I have ever encountered. This is truly one of America's most haunted places." Thanks for listening to this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. And if you've not done so already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I upload episodes seven days a week. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me anytime with your questions or comments at darren at WeirdDarkness.com. That's D-A-R-R-E-N and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and you can join the Weirdos Facebook group on the Contact Social page at WeirdDarkness.com. While on the website, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, click on Tell Your Story to email it to me. Or tell your story by phone by calling the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. 5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a production of Marler House Productions. Copyright Weird Darkness 2021. I'm Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in this special Dark Hives episode of Weird Darkness. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com.